Last week, if y'all were here, Tim hit the ground running with this rebel series as he unpacked Jonah chapter one. And I got to say for me, that was one of the most powerful words I've heard in a long time. Convicting yet uplifting, man. I just thought he, he broke that down. So as we dive in this morning, I want to make two observations from Jonah chapter one to sort of set the stage for Jonah chapter two. Number one is this, when God calls and is truly of God, then that call never goes away. Number two, when God calls and is truly of God, no matter how hard you try, you can't outrun God's call. (laughs) Yeah, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all used Jonah as a role model and fled deliberately from the presence and the call of God on our lives. So God, in his sovereign grace, sometimes sends turbulence into our lives in order to get us back on track. Y'all ever been on a flight where you were just kind of cruising along, man, about to doze off or whatever, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you hit some turbulence? I was on a flight, man, this past October up to Indiana for a, a funeral, a family member up there, and I sat down next to a man who was probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and, you know, we got to talk in your standard airplane conversation, if you will. You know, what's your name? Where are you from? Where are you traveling to? What do you do for a living? I've noticed uh, since I got into full-time ministry that that has become a very loaded question that's usually going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to be the start of a very long conversation or it's going to be the end of conversation. Well, in this case, uh, it was the end of conversation. My brother wasn't in the mood to talk about Jesus, so it got very awkward real quickly. He literally went silent, turned away, and stared out the window. (laughs) So I did what any good Christian would do in that moment. I told him that Jesus loved him, and I went to sleep. (laughs) So we're cruising along about an hour into the flight, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it happens. We hit some turbulence. And y'all aren't going to believe what happened next. That same brother, I swear, who didn't want anything to do with Jesus, that he got saved. Because as we started free falling at 30,000 feet, he began to shout the name Jesus Christ like it was nobody's business. (laughs) Y'all ever notice that Jesus always gets the glory in moments of turbulence? Like, when have you ever been next to somebody on an airplane and you hit turbulence and they shouted Allah or Buddha? I'm just saying. As we're going to see, though, in Jonah chapter 2 this morning, turbulence has a way of getting our attention back on what really matters. More importantly, I think, turbulence has a way of recapturing our awe. In Jonah 2, your boy Jonah is about to have an encounter with turbulent grace. As we dive in, I want us to see two things specifically in Jonah chapter 2. Number one, we'll look at the root of Jonah's disobedience, why he actually disobeyed God. And number two, we'll see the fruit of his repentance. That is, how did he respond after he disobeyed? So the context, real quick, y'all remember the end of chapter one. Remember it says that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Don't miss that detail. God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah, and he spent 
Three days and three nights and the belly of a fish. And here we hit chapter two and we find a record of Jonah's prayer inside the belly of a fish. So it's just 10 verses. Let's read through these real quickly together. Verse one of Jonah chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and all your waves passed over me. Verse 4, then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Verse 5, the waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings, or the bottom of the mountains. The earth with with its bars closed behind me forever yet you have brought up my life from the pit O lord my god verse 7 when my soul fainted within me i remembered the lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple verse 8 those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So where to begin? I actually, uh, I want to start in verse 8 and then circle our way back around because for me, the drama of Jonah hinges on verse 8. He says, Those who obey worthless idols, they literally turn away from their living source of mercy. See, idol worshipers, Jonah knew this, were the people God had called Jonah to go to in Nineveh. Idol worshipers were those pagan sailors who in chapter 1, verse 5, prayed each to his own God. But all of a sudden, Jonah makes this connection that idol worshipers forsake their own hesed. Now, Jonah uses the Hebrew word for God's covenantal love, his redeeming, unconditional grace. Understand, this was a term used to describe God's relationship specifically to Israel, God's chosen people. But suddenly, it's like Jonah has this aha moment that idol worshipers forsake their own mercy. Did y'all catch that? Idol worshipers forsake their own mercy. Well, How could that be that Jonah makes this connection that grace is just as much theirs as it is his? Well, because grace is grace, and if grace is what it is, then at the end of the day, none of us, and I mean none of us, are worthy. I want to define for you this morning the term turbulent grace as God's one-way love. God's one-way love. And for me, what makes God's love unique and unlike any other love is that God's love isn't object-based, but subject-based. That is, God's love isn't based upon how awesome you are, but how awesome he is. God's love doesn't depend upon how bad you've been, but how good he is, period. So we have here this rebel living in one-way disobedience who all of a sudden counters God's one-way love, and it literally wrecks him. In verse 8, I think Jonah is exposed like never before. 
In this moment of turbulence, he makes the connection that I'm the one. I'm the one who has obeyed worthless idols, who has bowed my heart again and again to these things that don't satisfy. I'm the one who has forsaken, turned away from my own living source of God's has said, his mercy. You see, Jonah realizes right here is that he ran because of his own idolatry. And what verse 8 teaches us is that idolatry cuts off the flow of God's grace into our lives. And without the grace of God's presence and his power at work in us, it's impossible, I believe, to truly obey God and live out his calling. Yet as we're going to see in Jonah's case, idolatry is much more subtle than what we think of as bowing down to a statue or something like that. I'll never forget in Bible college, I had the chance to travel to Israel and we got to study the life of Christ firsthand. And while I was out there with an affiliate Calvary Chapel campus, one of our teachers and tour guides was a Messianic Jew. Now we had some really cool conversations, but I'll never forget the time that I asked him what he thought about Western Christianity. This was his response. He said, y'all have, well, he didn't say y'all. He wasn't from the South. Y'all get the point. You have too many idols in America. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, sports, for example, he said. You spend millions upon billions of dollars erecting these massive stadiums, and each year people spend millions and millions of dollars worshiping and magnifying these athletes, so on and so forth. Now, please hear my heart this morning. I'm not implying that thousands of fans barking in a sea of red called Sanford Stadium is idolatry. (laughs) However, I do believe that our Jewish friend was on to something here. As soon as a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a God thing, lowercase g, because we look to that thing to give us the significance and the satisfaction that ultimately only God himself can give. So then all sin by its very nature is idolatrous in that we dethrone God in our hearts and instead insert ourselves or something else in his rightful place. Because we're not satisfied vertically in our relationship with God, we begin to shop horizontally looking to people, situations, and things to be the savior they can never be. At the end of the day, self rather than God becomes the ultimate source of satisfaction in our lives. And as we see in Jonah's case, idols sidetrack us and sideline us from the grace of God that enables us and empowers us to truly obey God and live out his calling. As the apostle Peter lays out in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For Jonah, though, man, it was an interesting case of idolatry, to say the least, Number one, Jonah, we see, had a personal idol. Jonah cared more about his own security and his own comfort more than he did obeying God. I mean, after all, though, I get it. God had called this lone Hebrew prophet to march into the single most powerful city of that day, Nineveh, and preach to these people to bow down on their knees before God. No doubt, Jonah, I get it. The fear of failure had become a legit idol in his heart. So avoid the responsibility altogether and you avoid the potential for failure. Number two, we see that Jonah had a cultural 
idol. We find out later on, and Tim hit this last week, that Jonah didn't even want Nineveh to be saved. In Jonah's mind, man, culturally speaking, Israel was better than Nineveh. Israel was superior to Assyria. No doubt, man, Jonah's racial pride was a legit idol in his heart. And number three, we find out that Jonah had a religious idol. In his case, it was moral self-righteousness. In Jonah's eyes, he was holier than thou. Some, somehow, he was worthy of God's grace, but those pagan Ninevites, man, they deserved to go to hell. The point I think we need to see this morning is that idolatry isn't just a failure to obey God. It's a setting of the entire heart on something besides God. An idol is essentially anything that exalts itself in our minds, pretending to be bigger and more powerful than God. Pretending to be more satisfying, more rewarding than God. For Jonah, I think in his mind, Nineveh had become bigger and more powerful than God. Jonah's little kingdom had appeared to be more satisfying and more rewarding than God's big kingdom. See, the way idols work is that they first capture our attention and our affection. See, they steal our focus, and they cause us to feel overpowered, controlled, and even mastered. And before you know it, idols capture our awe. You see, God made us very unique, human beings created in his image, in that we have the capacity to experience awe, to experience amazement and wonder. Like, I don't know about you, but when I eat cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, I'm in awe. Or when you fall in love with somebody, hopefully you're in awe of that person. When you get that new car or that new job or that new house, you're in awe, man. I don't know if you have any March Madness fans, but when I'm watching Villanova beat North Carolina with a last second three-pointer, I'm in awe. And I'm not bitter at all that North Carolina beat my Indiana Hoosiers. <laughs> But that, that, that's a whole nother sermon. Let's not go there. But the, the point is, though, that God created us with this capacity to experience awe, ultimately to point us to the worship of God and his glory. So essentially, idolatry happens when vertical awe for God is replaced by horizontal awe. Idolatry happens when my heart is seduced not by the glory and the beauty of God, but by the glory and the beauty of this fading world. So then horizontal awe cuts off the flow of God's grace into our lives so that instead of living for the glory of God, we live for the glory of me. So the question to ask yourself this morning isn't, do I have any idols, but what are my idols? All of us now. What steals your attention? What grabs your affection? What captures your awe? Tim posed this question last week. What is your personal Nineveh that you know needs to be dealt with? Whether it's sex, alcohol, or drugs. Whether it's unforgiveness, bitterness, or hatred whether it's the fear of failure or the fear of approval, whether it's an unhealthy attachment to 
career, or family, whether it's worshiping yourself, your body, or your image. Idols blind us, enslave us, and paralyze us. See, idols consume so much of our mental, emotional, and physical energy that they begin to choke out the abundant life of Christ in our hearts so that ultimately our lives go wasted and our calling goes unfulfilled. But God... But God, some of the most reassuring words I've ever read in the whole Bible show up again in Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But God sent out a storm. (laughs) See, you and I know God is a jealous God. He refuses to share his glory with counterfeit gods who cannot satisfy you and ultimately will never save you. So God, in his grace, will send turbulence into our lives. For me, man... A rebellious 22-year-old raised in hell in college. I had completely rejected the existence of God. It was a three-year relationship with a girl ending in lying, cheating, and heartbreak that would send my life spiraling out of control. For Jonah, it was a boat full of pagan sailors, a storm that shipwrecked him, and even a giant fish that would swallow him, all for one simple purpose, I believe to recapture Jonah's awe. Through the gift of turbulent grace, the root of Jonah's disobedience was exposed. His disobedience wasn't just a behavior problem, it was an awe problem. So whatever your personal Nineveh is this morning, understand it's only the fear of something greater that disarms the fear of something lesser. I believe with all my heart it's only an awe-inspiring, reverential fear of God that disarms the horizontal fears and idols of doing life in a fallen world. As Oswald Chambers put it, fear God or fear everything else. We've seen now the root of Jonah's disobedience. Now I want us to see the fruit of Jonah's repentance. We're going to see his response here in chapter two that he cries out to God not only in repentance but rejoicing you see repentance by itself ain't enough repentance is more than feeling guilty about your sin and beating yourself down to the point of despair true repentance is a vision of change that is both available and possible through the grace of God What if I told you that repentance were one of the greatest gifts God could ever give you? Would it not then be a cause for rejoicing for all of us? Let's look at it now, the fruit of Jonah's repentance. Number one, we see that God answers us in spite of our guilt. God answers us in spite of our guilt. Verses one and two, Jonah says, and it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. So you guys already know the story. Jonah wasn't on his way to Nineveh. He was running directly from God. He was in disobedience to God. Yet nevertheless, he cries out to God, and God answers him in spite of his guilt. For some of you, you need to get this this morning. Maybe that's you. You realize you've been living in disobedience for a while now. You're sick and tired of running, yet at this point, you're overwhelmed, even paralyzed by the guilt and the shame that's eating away at you. 
Please be encouraged by Jonah. Allow your guilt to drive you to his grace. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God's grace is infinitely greater than your guilt. Number two, we see that God answers us in spite of his judgment. Verses three and four, Jonah says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Notice he said you, and the floods surrounded me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, Jonah says you, right? But wasn't it the pagan sailors who threw him overboard? Well, yeah, but we know that the pagan sailors were nothing more than God's divine instruments to get Jonah's butt off of that boat and into that water. And I think we learn an important lesson that we've watered down in today's church, and that is this. God deals harshly with sin. Let me say that one more time. God deals harshly with sin. God was angry at Jonah's disobedience. And maybe some of you are like, well, that's Old Testament, brother. Even in the New Testament, man, Galatians 6, Paul lays it out for us. God is not mocked. Our God is a God of justice. He cannot deny himself. He says, if of the flesh you sow, then of the flesh you will reap corruption. You will reap destruction. Your sin has consequences. And maybe that's you. You realize that you've turned from God in disobedience. You've been running from him. And at this point, unfortunately, though, you've believed the lie that because I've been running from God, then God is the last place I could possibly turn for help. You think, well, maybe I just got to fix myself. Maybe I just got to get my head on straight. Maybe I got to get my act cleaned up first, and then I'll be more presentable to come back to God. Please check out this lesson we learned here in Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Although for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Were you guys ever spanked as a kid growing up? Well, my parents raised three incredibly rowdy boys, so they didn't really have a choice. I'll never forget, though, growing up, my parents had this wooden paddle with a heart shape cut out right out of the middle of it, man. I hated that thing. I was convinced it should be a picture of the devil because I thought it was evil, <laughs> not a heart. But I'll never forget, man, every time that they would go to paddle me, I don't know if you did this as a kid, but I would tighten up my backside, we'll say, since we're in church. I would tighten up, I would tighten up my backside as hard as I could to, I guess, like absorb and resist the shock. And I'll never forget Probably the proudest moment of my childhood when my mom one time went to paddle me because I hit my brother. And uh, as she hit me, I broke that stinking paddle right in half. <laughs> right down the middle of the heart. I remember looking at my mom, very proud. But as, as I was thinking about this man, I thought, in my own life, in your own life, how many times have you and I tightened ourselves in rebellion? How many times have we resisted the love of God, the loving hammer of his conviction that we've broken his heart? 
Get the whole point of the heart on this paddle, as my parents always reassured me. Like, Trevi, we're doing this because we love you, and it's not okay to hit people. Like, that's not going to get you very far in life. In the same way, just like a loving parent, God disciplines those whom he loves in order to shape us into the person he's made us to be. God's discipline is never only punitive, but is always, always redemptive. The bottom line is this. God loves you too much to let you stay where you are. But the good news is this. God loves you enough to meet you where you are right here and right now. The third point we see is that God answers us in impossible circumstances. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Jonah says, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountain. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. So just imagine yourself right now drowning in a raging sea with waves 20 to 30 feet tall. That would be an impossible circumstance, right? Yet God hears the cry of Jonah's heart and delivers him by providing a fish to swallow him. Now, let's not miss the miracle in this story this morning. When I was in Bible college in Southern California, we were studying the book of Jonah, and I had a friend who explained to me that it was scientifically possible for man to survive in the belly of a whale, and I think Tim hit this last week, because of the acidity or whatnot, and that's cool. Maybe it is scientifically possible, but here's my conclusion. God is God. If God wants to give you another breath, he'll do just that. And when God is ready to take back your breath, he'll do just that. Don't miss the miracle of the story, man. The fish is God's supernatural provision because it gave Jonah a chance to recover and repent, man. At some point, he had just enough consciousness to offer up this prayer of repentance to God that ultimately would save him. Man, as I'm studying this, I'm reminded of my own story. As I mentioned briefly already, just a 22-year-old living in complete rebellion, I had rejected the existence of God at this point. So God sent this turbulence into my life, man, through this three-year relationship ending in devastation and then sent my life just spiraling downhill into self-destruction through the college party scene and everything that comes with it. And at that point, man, in my desperation, I did what I always did. I decided just to run away again. For me, I was a Spanish major, and I had the opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic. My parents actually had a, a missionary friend who had a ministry down there, and they set it up so that I just had to buy the plane ticket, and then I had a free place to stay when I got there. However, there was just one condition. I would be staying with a Dominican pastor and his family. So I show up, man, and, and at this point, man, I'm, I'm broken, I'm in bondage, and I'm desperate, and it's like this Dominican pastor just saw right through me. Like he just knew what was going on before I ever told him. And that first night I was there, he took me outside under this cabana and he said, Trevor, tell me your story. And the crazy thing, this is all happening in Spanish. And I tell him my story, man, and I'm on the verge of tears. And he says, Trevor, I believe what you need is Jesus. And I'm like, for the first time, I was open to the idea of that. But 
I didn't know how to make myself believe. So he said, Trevor, I just, I want to pray for you. That simple. So this Dominican pastor laid his hands on me, man, and, and he began to pray in Spanish. And in that moment, man, the, the presence of God just ambushed my heart. In that moment, these blind eyes were open to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, to experience his love and forgiveness. And I went in my room that night and got on the Wi-Fi and emailed my parents. I said, you're not going to believe what happened. I don't know how, but this pastor down here, he's crazy, but he prayed for me. And now I believe in Jesus. Is there anybody in here this morning who believes that we still serve a God of the impossible? A God who gives sight to the blind, a God who heals the sick, a God who raises the dead to life, a God who chases down rebels like you and me and draws them into the sphere of his love. Yet sometimes I think he has to allow the circumstances to become impossible before we can experience his supernatural deliverance. Number four now, God answers us how he sees fit. Verse 7, Jonah cries out, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Now, more literally, Jonah's saying, as I was losing consciousness, I remembered the Lord. Some of us need to remember the old cliche, God's timing is not our timing. That's just the reality. God, he answers us in his time, how he sees fit. Sometimes... God answers us in stages. God delivers us in stages. Like I doubt as Jonah's drowning in this raging sea that he prayed something like, God, send Shamu to swallow me up for three days. No, the belly of a giant fish hardly sounds like salvation, but it was. Like I said, in the belly of the fish, Jonah had just enough consciousness to realize that he had been spared and that there was still hope. And notice what he does at this moment. He he doesn't start to complain about his surroundings, but he starts to praise God for his work up to that point. So for some of you, here's a word this morning, and I say this in love. Stop complaining about where God has you. Pity will destroy you. Instead, recognize the partial works of God up to this point and praise him for it. Even though you haven't yet reached dry land, you're no longer drowning because his righteous right hand upholds you. If God be for you, then who can be against you? And then in verses 9 and 10, we see the fruit of Jonah's Repentance, He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on to dry land. So the fruit of Jonah's repentance is his rejoicing. Notice this verse. He's still in the belly of a fish and he begins to worship God, to praise God and to give him thanks. He worships God not because of his circumstances, but because of who God is. Which tells me that there is power in our praise. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that God has exalted the name of Jesus above every other name. So understand when we worship and lift up the name of Jesus, I believe every other name has to back up and bow at his name. So understand there is power in your worship. There is power in your praise. So let your praise become a problem for your problem. Through the turbulence of a life-threatening storm and three days in the belly of a fish, God has effectively, I believe, recaptured Jonah's awe. So as we close it now this morning, I actually want us to jump back to the beginning of chapter one where we see these words. Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. It's like, come on. Living in one-way disobedience and rebellion, then Jonah prayed. Drowning in a sea of disgust and desperation, then Jonah prayed. Engulfed in the belly of defeat and despair, then Jonah prayed. Why? Because he was chasing after God? No, because God's one-way love was pursuing him. Because Jonah was deserving? No, because God is merciful. So my question to you as we wrap it, what's it going to take for you to tap out and to cry out to God already? So you've been running and living in disobedience and rebellion. Cry out to Jesus. His one-way love is pursuing you in spite of you. So you've been drowning in a sea of desperation and disgust. Cry out to God for help. The psalmist tells us he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. So you've been engulfed in the belly of despair and defeat. Cry out to God for hope. The apostle Peter tells us that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You come to Jesus not on the basis of who you are and where you've been, but on the basis of who he is and where he's been on your behalf. Maybe for some of you, you've hit your rock bottom. Maybe it's personal tragedy or, or loss or addiction. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's family. Whatever your low point is, though, don't miss this detail here in verse 1. Jonah prayed to God, and God answered God from the belly of a fish. <laughs> which reassures me that there's no low too low for the love of God. Come on, there's no darkness too dark for the love of God. There's no situation too hopeless for the love of God. You see, God, knowing that you and I would be seduced away from him, would send his own son after us to chase us down and to recapture our hearts once and for all. Jesus shows up onto the scene, man, some 700 years after Jonah. He would even be called the second Jonah because Jesus himself would spend three days in the belly of death itself. Yet on the, th the third day, he rose again, overcoming our sin, our shame, and our final enemy, death itself. So wherever you're at, realize there's no place off limits for the one-way grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to reach down and to rescue. But I've bowed again and again to an endless catalog of God replacements. But I've preferred my own sin instead of God. 
But I've sought after my own kingdom, not God's. But I've given my heart away again and again and again. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. All of a sudden, man, our one-way disobedience is confronted by his one-way love. And like Jonah, our only response is violent repentance and all-inspired worship of God's glory and his grace. As we close now, the band's going to come back up here. But I want to give all of us an opportunity to do three things. Confess, repent, and respond. Number one, confess, man. Against you and you only have I sinned, God. You've been living a lie. You've been hiding. You've been covering up. You have these secrets you've been storing away. You haven't disclosed. Our staff is going to be up here, elders. We believe James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be restored. We're here for you in love. But I believe confession is the point at which we fully abandon ourselves to God. And then number two, repent. Turn from yourself as the ultimate source of satisfaction in your life. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in the finished work of the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and a restored relationship back to God. This is what it's all about. And number three, respond. Man, let's worship God right now for his relentless pursuit on our lives. I'm convinced that spiritual growth is a daily process of responding to God's glory and allowing him to recapture our awe. So the good news this morning is that today is a new day because our God is a God of second chances, because our God is a God of new mercies, because our God is a God of boundless grace. Today's a new day because our God is a God of one-way love.